We're doing something a little different in that we're taking a short break from our series through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at this issue of being Christians in the digital age. Uh, Technology has sort of just happened to us. And for the most part, most people, we've just adopted a bunch of technology and a new way of living without critically reflecting and thinking about how it's shaping us and forming us. So we're asking the questions, how do we live well as Christians in this new world? And so um, it's crazy how fast things can change. And everyone in this room is at different ages. So you've experienced like the technological burst uh, in different ways. But as just as a marker, I looked when this church was started, South Valley Community Church, it was 1984. And even since then, and how you did church, like what was strategic or not, that's changed. So give you an idea, in 1984, uh, Little Isaac here was one years old, and this was like the new awesome computer, the Apple Macintosh. It boasted of uh, eight megahertz of raw computing power uh, and had 128 kilobytes of RAM. Now, for some of you, those numbers don't make any sense. For those of you who, who do know those numbers, uh, you know that like your calculator 10 years ago was better than that. What was uh, in the movies? 1984, cinematic masterpieces, this one, and don't forget this movie in 1984, uh, one of the best. They don't make them like they used to. What was on your TV? Uh, this show and this show. And if you're not aware of these, it's, I'm, I'm sorry, you're either too young and you've you never experienced the, the good times, or uh, maybe you're you're so old that that was just new garbage to you, man. It wasn't, I mean, this wasn't like the good old days. Uh, the beeper was still an advanced piece of technology in 84, and this was still in your home. Now, last week we talked about this issue, just this phone, and, and we really kind of stepped back and reflected on how going from that to a cell phone just radically shifted communication. And again, that's the point of this series is to sort of take that step back and go like, how is this shaping and forming us? So when you had a family phone, there was no such thing as a private conversation. Like, it didn't exist. You had to use that phone, and the best you could do is if you wanted some privacy, as we said, was like walk around the kitchen wall and make your way all the way to your bedroom and then shut the door. But there wasn't a private conversation because everyone knew they could just follow the cord and your brother can go put his ear right up against your doorway and you're just on the other side going like, he could hear everything. There's a family phone, it's a communal conversation. And more importantly, let's say if you're a parent, someone couldn't talk to your kids without your permission. Like they had to call, hey, is is Bob there? Oh, sure, come on, Bob, your friends want to talk to you. There was permission for conversation. Think about, we joked about like having a teenager at that time, how different it would have been. So, you know, bring, bring, the phone rings, dad picks up, uh, uh, hi, hi, uh, is Sarah, Sarah there? Hun, who, who's this kid calling for Sarah? Oh, that's probably Tim. He's the guy at school. I think he likes Sarah. You know, it's like, yo, Tim, she don't live here no more, and it's best that you forget this number, all right? There's like a per- permission was embedded in the conversation. There's no such thing as the private conversation. So, That is a world apart from your teenager inside of the room with the locked door on a tablet. It's just different. And so we have to to wrestle with these issues. And so we introduced the idea of the Hebrew word chokmah, which is the Hebrew word uh, for wisdom. And Jewish wisdom, Hebrew wisdom asks, asks this question, how do we live well in the world? And so particularly for this series, we're saying, how do we live well in the digital world, because that's the world that we now occupy. Now, important to note, uh, biblical wisdom is not a formula that guarantees anything. So in the Proverbs, you read wise sayings, but those wise sayings aren't always true. They are generally true in that this is the way the world works, and if you do this, this will generally happen, but it's not guaranteed. For example, the scriptures say that if you honor your mother and father, you will live a long life. Now, that isn't guaranteed. There's many people who loved and honored their parents and still die young. 
But what the wisdom saying is, the proverb is saying, is that generally, if there's a healthy family unit and children honor their mother and father, they will have better relationships and that will prepare them better for the world and they will more likely live longer and actually do better in most measurable categories. And that is statistically true. Healthy families have a greater chance at producing healthy children. It doesn't guarantee it. We joked around last week that um, some of you tried to do everything right and, and there's still a broken relationship. And then, you know, on the opposite end, some of you weren't great parents, but somehow your kids turned out awesome. The way it works. But generally speaking, that's what Chokmah deals with. Now we got our rallying cry from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you, you shall put on your heart. In other words, you are to love God with the sum total of your being. The next part was what was relevant for this series. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, the ways of God, the laws of God, the commands of God are to be integrated at every layer of your life. It says, write them on your door. So when you're going out to work, you're reminded to bring the ways and laws of God with you. And then when you come home with your children, you're reminded to bring the ways and the law of God with you. You write them on your hands, you carry them so that all throughout the day, you're constantly being reminded that the, the ways of God must be integrated. This is a problem because modern Americans tend to compartmentalize things. We have like a shelf with all these cubby holes. And here's uh, school life, here's my kids' life, here's, here's their, their little league, here's this, this, this. And among the many things that compose the complexity that is your life is faith or religion. And you take out the stuff in the little cubby with faith stuff when you need it. And the scripture is saying the Christian has to integrate the faith in all layers, all compartments. Now, last week we talked about this in context to the family life, kids and marriage, etc. What I'd like to do today is talk briefly on how all of this technology and the digital era is affecting how we do church and how we even go to church. Because for some time now, there's been a growing individualism in our culture. And that growing individualism has been accelerated by technology. And so the individualism was already growing for some time and now technology has kind of accelerated it to super speed. So we are like a hyper individualistic culture. Individualism has married with technology and we are sort of the metaphoric children of that marriage. Now, in order to understand kind of where we're at in time, we've got to take a step back and look at a big picture issue because there was a significant event that pretty much changed the world overnight where things that were just done normally were completely altered and it completely like upended everything. You guys know the historical event I'm talking about. The printing press. I know some of you are thinking something else. The printing press. This is uh, the invention of Gutenberg in 1440, where we were finally able to print books really fast and really efficiently. Now, why is that such a significant event? Because it changed the way we interact with text. It changed the way we interact with the Bible, with literature. So, uh, for the most part in human history, People read in groups out loud. So in Jesus' day, where was the place and how did it occur that you would actually encounter the scriptures? In Jesus' day, you would go with your family to synagogue and you would have the scriptures read out loud. Now, because literacy levels, literacy rates were down and because there's not just books being printed every, everywhere, synagogue was like the place because they actually had Torah scrolls. They had the Hebrew scriptures and there was people there that were literate that can read them. But if you were born most places in human history, good chances were you couldn't read and there wasn't a local library with a bunch of books. There was one place that had the community text, especially the sacred text. So 
How do we encounter the Bible primarily in the modern era? We, have, we don't have to go anywhere to go see the Torah scrolls. You have a Bible. As a Christian, you could buy your own Bible and you could read. You just read whenever you want. And how do you read usually? In your head, right? Silently. Most people, historically speaking, read out loud. So much so that even when they were reading by themselves, the habit was just that they would read out loud. Just how you read, you read out loud. Now, put this in perspective. Uh, If I were to say, you know, Sunday, church, we're gonna read the scriptures together. And I'm just gonna read out loud the entire book of Matthew. How long would it take for the majority of us, for our minds, to start going other places? Some Some of you last like two minutes. 30 seconds, right? If I were to start reading the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Abraham begat so-and-so, Isaac begat so-and-so, take 30 seconds because our brains have been wired this way. That's what growing up in the digital age has done. We couldn't even listen for very long. Now, this is one of the reasons why every so often we do kind of communal readings of entire books of the Bible to put that emphasis back because the people who wrote the scriptures they presupposed that those scriptures would be read out loud in a community. We presuppose we'll read it in our head by ourselves. Now, I'm very grateful that, that I can read and I have access to a Bible and I could read it whenever I want and I could read it in my head, but that activity, again, is fundamentally different than how it would have been throughout human history. Now, since then, the language of individualism has, has just been accelerated to incredible degrees. So much so that whenever there's sort of a technological advancement, whenever there's a new tech device or tech toy, uh, think, think how we name the things. So um, if you have an Apple phone in your pocket, it's called a iPhone. Uh, the greatest of all social networks to ever be created was called MySpace, let's be clear on this. Some of you young, you young kids don't know. MySpace was, it was, people loved each other on MySpace. They cared, they checked in, they'd put you in their top eight and give you some encouragement. There was this little uh, uh, event wall where you could post things going on. It wasn't the bloodbath that exists out there now. Tom was a good man, he invented MySpace and when he knew it got too big, he sold it before it was too late. True story, all true story, man, it was great. MySpace, iPhone, we have devices in our pocket where we take, we take things out and take pictures of our self and we call them selfies. You don't have a family computer, you have a PC, which stands for personal computer. So all the language of the day is emphasizing the individual. It says all of the technology exists around me, which is a a way to say that the most important part of my life and my world is me. I am the center that everything else orbits around. Now, think how crazy this is. Go back to the phone. Um, Some of you, you were, you know, you came from a very lucky and blessed, privileged family, and you didn't just have one of those family phones in your home on the wall. You had two, one in the kitchen, one in the living room. And do you remember what you could do? If you were a parent, you could just straight listen in. Let's say the kid managed to get all the way to the corner of the room. (laughs) I got a second phone, huh? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Okay. Now, that's, for some of you, that's like, what? That's how it was? Yes. Well, for those of you who find that shocking... I'm gonna tell you what is shocking to my generation that grew up with the two phones in the room. Back in the day, there was something called a party line. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and for those of you are laughing, you remember this. Uh, it, it shows you where you're at on the timeline. Um, just as there was one phone line to a house, there was one phone line for like the block, or the neighborhood, or the community. So you could have like 20 houses on one phone line. Do you follow this? So your neighbor's on the phone three houses down and you could pick up and you're hearing 
what they're talking about. Now, if you were polite, you go, oh, sorry, Bob. Uh, you know how long you're going to be on the phone? Okay, yeah, 20 minutes. I'll just call back. It's not, not, a, not a big deal. I'll just I'll pop back on the, the party line in a half hour. Um, you know, and then you'd, you'd pick it up. But some of you, you know, type of people who are up in everyone's business, you come prepared. You know what I mean? Got like a towel in your hand. Listening to your neighbor's business, you know? And all of a sudden, hey, hey Sarah, do you, do you hear breathing on the, on the line? Are you, are you running? Oh, hey. Oh, it's me. Bob, is that you again? Are you listening in again? Oh, no, I just picked it up right now. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try again in 20 minutes. So th- just even among your neighbor's, the idea of a private phone call was foreign. Like anybody could listen in. It's, so this language of individualism has, has completely taken over. Now here's the thing. Sometimes unknowingly, the church is so saturated in the culture that we begin to adopt the language of the culture and insert it into our theological language, how we talk about the faith. So I'll give you an example. You can fill in the blank here. When we talk about becoming a Christian or the salvation event, we talk about accepting Jesus as your Lord and what comes before Savior? Personal Savior. Your Lord and personal Savior because you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, hear me on this. Is it, do you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus? Yes. And is he your personal savior? Yes, because he personally saved you. But the scriptures, if you look for the language of personal savior in the scriptures, you're not gonna find it. That's, that's a foreign idea. It's a foreign category. It's not that it's wrong. It's that it's just language steeped into our, our culture. So we often talk about like having um, God lives inside. I, invited Je- I personally invited Jesus into my heart and Jesus is in me. And the Bible talks about the spirit of God being in you as an individual, but the Bible talks more of you being in Christ rather than Christ being in you. And the reason for that is there's images associated with being in Christ. And the images are that of uh, the family of God, the household of God, being the flock of God, the fold of God, coming as children in the family of God. So the emphasis is on belonging to the people of God, the family of God, the fold of God. Where what we do in our culture is we emphasize the individual. And again, hear me, so I don't want anyone laying, Isaac thinks you don't have to have a personal relationship with the Lord. No, I'm just saying that it's interesting that we begin to unknowingly adopt the language of culture rather than, than scripture. And what happens is if you overemphasize one, you just emphasize the individual, you will neglect all the other categories that the scripture's talking about. We can so emphasize the idea of all you need is a personal relationship with Jesus to such a degree, and this, I've seen this take place as a youth pastor again and again and again, young people can just say, I just have my own personal private spirituality. I don't go to church or anything. I don't, I don't hang out with Christians. I don't go to church. I don't, it's, it's, he's my personal savior. And so you see how the emphasis swung the pendulum could swing so far that you're, you're neglecting these other important biblical categories. So here's an interesting idea. Uh, how many times Paul wrote each phrase? So Paul the apostle wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Uh, how many times does Paul use the phrase our Lord and how many times does he use the phrase my Lord? So when Paul talks about his very real personal relationship with the Lord, how often does he put it in Family of God language, communal language versus individual language. The Apostle Paul says, our Lord 53 times, he says, my Lord once. So you see, we are being shaped by a hyper-individualism. Individualism is a good thing. Like you should be personally responsible for yourself. There's a good thing of it. But like anything, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. 
And so what I want to briefly do is, is talk about how hyper-individualism paired with technology affects even how we think about church and how we go to church. So for 2,000 years, Sunday morning has been central to the life of the believer. It was like presupposed, if you're a Christian, that Sunday was central in, in your week. There's a, do you see that? Some of you in the back think I'm crazy. Looked at too much digital screens growing up. There was a little, little mosquito thing flying right here. Did you see it? There's eyewitness testimony. Okay, two to three witnesses. Thank you. Um, we're, we're now in our, in our culture, there's a thousand things competing with Sunday that, that makes it easy to not make it center or, or central. So for instance, back in the day, like... What was competing with Sunday morning church? No Little League, no baseball. There, there's no sports. There's no music lessons. There's, there's no NFL. There's none of this other stuff. So it was, it's like everything closed down. Eh, what else am I going to do? Might as well go to church. But things have shifted where now there's a thousand things competing with, with that slot for Sunday morning. There's a thousand things um, I remember when I was a child, I every so often would hear someone say, I can't believe how many things are opened on Sunday. Everything was open on Sunday when I was a child. But you still had people saying, I can't believe it. Now, some of you are, again, old enough, got them, <laughs> to remember when things actually weren't open on Sunday. Like stores closed down, like everything was Chick-fil-A. Everything closed down on Sundays. Well, now, it'd be bizarre if something was op- closed on Sundays. And so there's all these competing things. Interesting, some historians of the NFL talk about how NFL started games on Sunday. And essentially, <clears throat> what many people say is that um, the networks wanted something to show on Sundays because there was, there was nothing else to compete with. And they didn't want to compete on Fridays and Saturdays because Friday and Saturdays was high school and college sports days. So we're not gonna compete with high school and college, but we, could, we got a good slot for you on Sunday morning. And so decade after decade, there's been a slow erosion of the centrality of Sunday mornings. It's been real slow. Right now in America, there's roughly, and the stats are different, there's different studies, but roughly 60 to 70% of Americans say they're Christian. 60 to 70% say they are Christian. About a little over 30% say that they regularly attend church. So 60 to 70% of people say they're Christian. A little over 30% say they actually go go to church. Of those people who say they go to church, what that comes down to of how often they come to church is roughly a little less than once a month. So 60 to 70% say they're Christian. A little more than 30% say they go to church. And then how often people who say they go to church actually go to church is like once a month at best. Which is like, um, okay. So some of you, this is like some of you, oh no, this is gonna be, feel guilty after the next five minutes. Okay. That's bad. That's bad church, church attendance. The good news is you can make new habits. You make new habits. So don't feel guilty. Let's, let's build some, some good habits. But I want to show you um, sort of like the cognitive dissonance that it takes to do this. Because if you say, I am a Christian, and you only get to church once every five to six weeks, like what's your reason for not getting to church, okay? Well, when polled, here's the top two reasons why people who are only coming every, no, every now and then, what, what do they say? Top two listed reasons are personal priorities and busyness. Okay, so um, my personal priorities and I'm busyness, church. Okay, Um, the cognitive dissonance. If you are a Christian, by definition, your biggest personal priority is Christ and his kingdom and his people. Like by definition, that's what it is. Like definitionally, you're a Christian, Seek first the kingdom of God, all will be added unto you. Okay. 
So there's like this, this rare thing that's going on in our brain. And, and, and again, there's, there's tons of, some, some, we're gonna talk about this in a moment. So there's tons of reasons that keep, legitimate reasons that keep people from physically gathering. We'll talk about that in a moment. But just all things being equal, it's like, I'm just personally busy. I got a lot of priorities, man, I'm busy. Okay. Picture a, a, a wedding day. Husband says his vows to his wife. You are the queen of my heart. I love you. You are, you are first and foremost. I will serve you till death do us part. Great marriage. Everyone loved it. They love each other. It's great, man. A year goes by. Anniversary time. Nothing. No anniversary, like, no, no, no chocolates, no dinner, not even acknowledgement of the anniversary. So the next day, in disappointment, the wife asks the husband, did, did you forget about our anniversary? Oh, no. No, no, I didn't forget. Yeah, I just had, you know, I had some personal priorities uh, and I was busy. You're like, what? Would it almost be better if you forgot, right? What would you, oh my gosh, you know me, I don't remember anything for dates. Oh, my personal priorities, man. Year two comes. No anniversary. Next day, the wife asks, oh, no, I didn't forget. I just, I'm real busy right now. Year three. Same thing. Well, honey, you know I love you. You know you're first in my life. You know you're my priority, but sometimes my other priorities just start piling up. Year four, nothing. Year five, some chocolates and some dinner and a present. What happened? The husband's like, oh, you know I, you know I love you. Just those other ones, you know, my priorities and busyness were in the way, but this time uh, my schedule wasn't too busy and those other priorities weren't pressing, so I'm honoring my vows to you. Like you follow this. There's a complete disconnect in word and action. Saying, do, do, no, do, you're saying she's the number one priority. Is that true? Now, here's the, the devastating part with this is, this is a little spillover from last week, but uh, especially with those um, with children, you know they're watching. You know, if dad says he loves mom but doesn't act as if he loves mom, they're watching, they see. And if mom and dad say, Christ is what's most important in this family, our number one prayer is that you love the Lord and serve him all the days of your life. Christ is what's most important. But then they see you place all these other priorities above Christ. It doesn't matter what you say. They observe all, they see all. They're like the eye of Sauron. There is no escaping their gaze. They see it all. They know it all. And so they're going to see this and they're going to see mom and dad say this is what's most important, but that can't possibly be what's most important. This is more important. Mom and dad care more about this and fill in the blank. Baseball, literally, whatever. Fill in the blank. And I don't say this to make anyone feel guilty. I say this because I care for your family and your soul and the future of your children. Like you can't say Christ is most important and deny it in your weekly habits and expect your kids to believe that and take it as truth. That type of family integration, that type of faith integration will not survive college. And in the Bay Area, that type of faith won't have them survive high school. It won't last. It's not gonna make it. They're gonna know what's most important. They will get their values from mom and dad you give your kids those values and you can say one thing, but if your life demonstrates the other, they're gonna do the same. So you can't just, personal priorities in business, you can't, can't have that. Now, uh, something happened, a major um, crazy thing, a, a, a world-altering event where almost everything changed overnight. And it's not the printing press. March, 2020. COVID hit, and all of a sudden, like, very quickly, every church figured out how to do online church, right? Real quick. Some better than others. Some of it we're figuring out as we go. We're figuring it out as we go. It was like every week. How do we do that? I don't know. And uh, let me say this. I was very thankful to be able to do online church service. Very grateful for that. 
The technology that, that's used to, to have us do an online church service was awesome, and we are grateful for that. But at the same time, I want you to recall, for those of you who were here two years ago, um, three years ago, oh my gosh, um, recall the language that we used here. If you recall, if you were here, we never once said something like, we're doing church as usual, or, or we're doing church like always. We never used language that said what we were doing was the same thing as gathering together on a Sunday morning, because it wasn't. Watching church on that screen was not the same thing as physically gathering together. Were we thankful for it? Yes, absolutely. But you remember, we tried to, um, as soon as we possibly could, and we kind of got our feet settled, we started doing outdoor services. Many of you attended these outdoor services. Remember when we did them? In sunshine and in rain, rain or shine, we did this. Remember some Sundays, the rain was easy. What was the worst? Well, the hot, yeah, I was gonna say the wind because there were some days we were strapping down kids so they didn't fly away. (laughs) The wind was crazy, like the worship team's guitars were breaking on stage, falling over from the wind. But we met every Sunday, rain or shine. Why? Because the physical gathering of God's people is fundamentally different than watching it on a screen. It's just a different thing. Now, am I thankful for technology? Yes, absolutely. Every week we have several hundred people watch online. And every, every so often, I, I'm, I'm, uh, someone interrupts me in the grocery store or something. And they'll say, Pastor, um, We're so grateful for the online services. Uh, My husband is bedridden. He can't get out of bed and we're watching every single Sunday. And so we have people, hundreds of people, and we're grateful. And I'm grateful that the technology exists. But let me tell you that the same people who are like, we're so grateful, pastor, they also, we would wanna be with you. We would wanna go, but we just can't. So you have to understand that online services and technology and podcasts and YouTube, they're good, but in the right order. They're not replacements, they're supplements. They get you by when you can't get what is truly best. It's not optimal. It's good in the right order and in the right hierarchy. And so there's all kinds of reasons why you might be watching online. We have tons of people watching every Sunday. But if you don't have a good reason, you need to be gathering physically with God's people. Online is great, but it's a supplement. It it can't be the replacement. And COVID, in a weird way, taught us both of these things, that one, digital services can be very helpful, but it also taught us that uh, digital human interactions are not the same. So go back to like the first month of, of all this. Let's say April 2020. Do you remember Zooming or FaceTiming with loved ones? Were you very grateful for that? Yes, thank God for that technology. But let's say you're a grandparent and you, you know, you're zooming with the grandbabies. Was that the same thing as feeling their embrace in a hug and laughing and playing with them in the same room? It's not the same thing. It's a good thing. You're glad you have it, but not a replacement. When I travel, I thank God there's a phone that I could call and talk to my wife and my kids, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever it may be. But that's not the same thing. In fact, it's weird. If you've ever, if you've ever traveled and, and you do like a Zoom call or a phone call, sometimes that call actually makes the distance harder when you say goodbye because you're like, that was good, but it's not the same thing as being physically with someone near them. And so all of this is to say is that we want to use technology in the right space and in the right order. And there are plenty of reasons why people need to take advantage of some online stuff. But what I want to tell you all, and for the many people who watch online, is that, no, if you can get to a church, get to a church physically. We're embodied creatures. We're meant to be places physically. Okay, there's a theology behind this. Um, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. There's many places, but this is at least one. It says, therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, that's super heavy. 
the whole book of Hebrews is super heavy. And for 10 chapters, the author of Hebrews has been doing deep theological work, speaking of the supremacy of Christ in all things. After he's spoken for 10 chapters on the supremacy of Christ over all things, he says this, therefore, in light of the supremacy of Christ in all things, you can go with confidence into the holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Now, what's the image of the holy place? Image of the holy place is the temple. Um, And only one dude got to go into the holy place in the temple. And that one guy got to do it on one day of the year, the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. So follow this. The image that he's drawing upon from the Old Testament is the fact that one guy on one day of a year got to go into the holy place where the presence of God was. And even then, he burned coals and incense so that a smoke screen could divide him and, from the presence of God. Now, this is easy to miss, but this is incredible. The author of Hebrews says... You know that thing that one guy got to do one time a year with smoke? You now, because of the blood of Christ, get to do that with confidence. You draw near to God himself with boldness and confidence because of the blood and work of Christ. So he has that image of believers going with confidence into the presence of God. And with that on his mind, he goes on to say this, let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three key phrases. With all of this in mind, you go with boldness into the presence of God. You hold fast to the confession you hold fast to the confession of faith and you stir up one another to love and good works. And you do this by what? Not neglecting to meet together as some people do. So how, do you, how are you gonna hold fast to the faith? In the world that we live in, how do you hold fast to the truth? How do you commit yourself to love and good works? Well, according to this, One of the things you do is not neglect gathering. It's an interesting thing. It says to stir up one another to love and good works. Uh, Why is gathering important to stir up one another for for love and good works? Um, Because you don't, you don't, you're not so awesome of a person that you just sit idly and erode into sainthood. Like you need the gathering of God's people, the singing of God's people, the administration of the word, the sacraments, you need all of those things bearing upon your life so that there's this stirring up of love and good works because you aren't gonna just randomly be awesome. You're not gonna be a person of love and good works all on your own. In other words, um, having a personal relationship with Jesus is great, but if you just have a personal relationship between him and you, you're not gonna make it. You can't do the Christian life and the Christian walk by yourself. You're gonna fail. You are not that awesome. You are not so gifted that all it takes is deep inside of you. You need other people. You need other support. And maybe you don't need that at all times in your life, but trust me, there'll be days when life hits you hard and you can't do it by yourself. So you gotta stir up. You gotta stir these things up and you do that by not neglecting. Now, I know some people might be saying, um, this is where our, our focus on individualism and adopting that language has hurts us because we could put, we've put such an emphasis on like personal relationship and by yourself and your own private time and da 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 that now you have, and particularly young people, going like, well, I don't, I don't need church or anything. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take a selfie on Sunday of uh, taking a hike and I'm gonna put, this is my true sanctuary, my real church. Now, going on hikes and worshiping God, that's all good, but that's not the same thing as gathering with God's people. It's not the same thing. It's a different thing, it's a good thing, but it's not the same thing. And so, um, some of you might be saying, Isaac, I know better, you're trying to make it like church is the building, but I know that church is not the building, church is the people, right? Well, we've, ta- we've emphasized that in church culture. It's not, it's not a building, it's the people. 
Yes, you're right. Of course, it's the people. But what have God's people done for 2,000 years? For 2,000 years, God's people gather together to worship, hear his word, stir each other up, take communion because they know they needed it. Now, that could take place in a home with five or seven Christians in a house church. It could take place in a size of a church like this or a mega church with 5,000 people. But you gather and you worship and you sing and you hear God's word and you take communion together because you can't do it by yourself. You just can't. It's not going to work. Now, this isn't arbitrary. It's not like, oh, going to church on Sundays is, is just this arbitrary good habit. It's a much bigger deal than that. Um, the seven-day rhythm that forms our Sunday habit is embedded into the fabric of time. So in the creation account, God creates the world in six days and on the seventh he rests. And likewise, human beings work for six days and they rest on the seventh. Most people don't realize, though, that that seven-day rhythm is amplified in the Old Testament and it repeats itself at a much larger scale. So you have six days of work and then a seventh-day rest for humans. But then you also have six uh, six years of work for the land and a seventh sabbatical year where the land rests. So an agricultural agricultural kind of culture, um, every every seventh year you would not farm the land, you would let it rest. It's a command in scripture. So every six days, there's six days of work, a seventh day of rest for humans. Then there's a seventh year of rest for the land. And then there's also something called the year of Jubilee, which takes place every seven times seven years. And it's a day where all like debt is forgiven. Some of you complain about some of the Old Testament commands. Year of Jubilee sounds great. It's a race sin of debt. By the way, it might have happened, but there is no known historical reference to Israel actually following the commands of the year of Jubilee. Then, on top of that, every 70 times seven years, so every 490 years, there's a super Jubilee. And the book of Daniel talks about this super mega awesome, like super Sabbath Jubilee, and that was associated with the coming of the Messiah and the forgiveness of sins. So, Embedded into the calendar of the Hebrew scriptures is this rhythm. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. And it's again and again at multiple levels, days and years, decades and centuries. So it's no coincidence then that the very first Christians adopted that exact same pattern and rhythm. They didn't meet on the Sabbath, Shabbat, but they took the resurrection day. Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, and then they gathered on that day with the same seven-day rhythm and pattern. So they adopt the rhythm and pattern, but then they begin very early in church history gathering on Resurrection Sunday. Because every Sunday is a Easter Sunday. I know we only celebrate Easter once a year, but theologically, every Sunday is the celebration of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's following that same rhythm. So it's not arbitrary. It's not like this is a random pattern that's just like, well, it's good to go to church every seven days. It's much deeper than that. It's embedded into time. Okay, with all of that, now I'm gonna give you like a quick list of five things that's the most practical, obvious, no-brainer stuff. There's no no new insight here. It's, this is, they're gonna be like painfully obvious. Um, But the, the, the thing is, Oftentimes, some of the most basic and simple stuff is the things that are neglected. You know what I mean? Okay, so out of all of this, this theology, the habits, what the technology, technological world is doing to our brains, what ought we do? Number one, go to church regularly and consistently. And if you are able to do it, do so in person. And make it a top priority. Don't let other things compete with that. Nothing is as important as that. That is the day you celebrate your king's death and resurrection. Nothing is as important as that. Now, are there going to be Sundays that you miss? Of course, there's like vacations and tragedies. And like for us, we just had a a new baby came on a Wednesday. So it's not, it's very difficult to get up on on a Sunday and go to church. So there's all kinds of different reasons. And, but I'm telling you, Make Sunday a habit. Make it a top priority. Don't let other things compete with it. Two, uh, pray together. 
physically with other people. It's good to pray in your head. Thank God. It's like reading the Bible. I thank God we could read the Bible. I thank God that I can pray silently in my head. But you know that there's, it's, it's a different thing to have someone hear your needs and then pray over you. You know this. It's different between your God in your head versus another Christian who loves and cares for you, praying over you for your needs. And so if you're going, I don't know where I can do that. I don't have many Christian friends. Couple things. One, every Thursday we have a prayer night here at this campus. On top of that, after every service, you can come up and have someone pray over you. And then third, we're going to talk about this um, with small groups at the end. But there's ways at which you can begin to allow people to pray for you and over you. Serve together. Come to church and like figure out a ministry to serve in. It's good for your soul. You're doing it together with another team. It's going to be good for you. This is a tip that was given to me in my youth group days. And for those of you who grew up in youth group culture, you might remember this. It was called the Paul Timothy Barnabas Principle. What it said was this, is that every Christian needs other Christians in their life and they need someone sort of above them, more mature than them, someone that they themselves are like working with and pouring into, someone that's less mature in the faith and then someone that's alongside of them. So picture it like this. Uh, Paul the Apostle is someone who's a more mature Christian than you. They've been walking with the Lord longer than you. They've gone through some of your hurts and they've come out on the other side. They're able to, to mentor you, disciple you, mature you. Then also, likewise, you should try to find some people maybe that you're further along in the faith and you can come alongside of them and pour into them and give them some of your wisdom. And then it's also good to have some people that are like at the same stage as you in the faith. You're sharing the exact same struggles, kind of doing it together. And so the idea behind it is you're surrounded with other Christians who are loving you, praying for you, coming alongside of you. And the last, the last one is a way to maybe sum up a lot of these things is the, one of the best places to find the avenues to do these things is in a small group. So if you don't have a Paul, Timothy, and Barnabas, where's the best place to find it? Probably in a small group. You're gonna know real quick who's more mature in the faith than you. You probably know real quick who's even less mature in the faith than you. Um, you're gonna p- find people to serve with. You're gonna find people that are gonna pray for you and pray over you. And then you're gonna find people when you do do the corporate gathering on Sunday morning, yeah, that's my small group friend. You're like, you have connections. It's just different. We are embodied creatures. We need other human beings. The digital world offers great tools and we wanna use them and employ them, but they are not replacements for the real thing. Okay, last thing. If you're a real curious person, you, you know, when I showed you this at the beginning, you're going, oh, he says our Lord 53 times? You know, he says my Lord once? Where, well, where does Paul use my Lord that one, one time? What's that one time? I don't know what that is. Okay. So there's a temptation in sermons like this to begin to, um, some of you will feel guilty right away. I'm, I'm such a bad Christian. I hardly ever go to church. Da, da, da. The good news is you could change your habits. Some of you will feel guilty and kind of out of like frustration. Just go, I'm just going to start going to church every Sunday. Just get this over with. You're probably right. I don't, you know, it's probably better that way. And it's like, it's, I don't want people to think, you know, I only come once every four months or something like that. And so the, the issue is like, what's your motivation for all of this? What is your motivation for being with God's people, your motivation for learning, for growing, for drawing near to God. What's the motivation? It can't be, it's probably right, feel guilty, I'm just gonna go to church so I don't feel bad. That can't be, your habit isn't gonna change with that. It's gonna be like a New Year's resolution. You have to have the proper motivation. Now, what's the proper motivation? I think it's found in the one time Paul used my Lord. Philippians 3.8, Paul the Apostle says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. 
If you grew up, grew up in church a long time, you know the, they always talk about the Greek word for rubbish here is skubalon, it means garbage or dung. Paul the apostle is saying, I count everything the world has to offer as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Do you feel this? It's not, I have to go to church, I have to read my Bible. I get to come with God's people on God's day, the Lord's day, celebrate his life, death, and resurrection. My motivation is to know him and to see him and to experience him because he is better than anything the world has to offer. I count it all as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. One of the most encouraging things for me as a pastor is on, on Sundays, some of you, 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 you physically demonstrate how happy you are to be at church. And it's like the most encouraging thing. It seriously is. And hey, I'm happy even if you're, you're mad at coming to church. You're here. Better, better do the right thing even if you don't want to, right? But when, when I see people like, dude, they're genuinely happy to be here. That's like mission accomplished. None of this stuff is I have to. It's we get to. This is the Lord's day. We're with the Lord's people, the family and fold of God, and we worship him and we take communion. We hear his word. Christ is better than what the world has to offer. He's better than it. I don't want my kids to think the world has something better to offer than Christ because that's not true. It's a lie. He's worth it. He's better. And so uh, every six days, you go through a rhythm and you have six days of hearing the words of, of men and fallen people. And then you come and we hear God's word on the seventh day. There's six days of toil and work. And then we have a seventh day of rest and celebration where we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because every Sunday is Easter Sunday. And you live in a world that is wiring your brains to focus on the pointless, the mundane, the irrelevant, and the trivial and then on one day we get to come and we remind ourselves of that which is most important, the transcendent, Christ, his kingdom, his people. And you better believe you will drift if you don't have the regular rhythm and reminders going on in your life. You won't drift into sainthood. You'll drift into something else. And so it is an honor and a privilege to be here with you all on Sunday with God's people, God's family, God's flock, singing to our King, learning from his words, and taking communion together. Let's stand as we take communion. <laughs>